Kia ora, welcome to Dirty Dirty Talk Podcast. How's it going, Mike? It's good. You know. You know, same old. Same old. Lockdown blues. A little bit of that. Mm. Yeah. Well. Let's, I... let's take the blues away with a little bit of podcasting. Yeah, I was just going to say, I've got something to cheer you up today. Cool. We have a pretty cool episode for you guys. We have my friend Lindy on the show. She grew up in the exclusive Brethren, and she's going to be sharing some stuff with us today. So it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, this is a this is a podcast I've been looking forward to for ages. She's amazing. So really, really lucky. Um, let's get into some headlines to begin with, though. Alrighty, let's start local in Aotearoa. So Destiny Church leader Brian Tamaki has been formally charged by police, thank goodness. So as we all know, he organised the anti-lockdown protest in Auckland over the weekend. And the 63-year-old man will appear in Auckland District Court next Tuesday for breaching Alert Level 3 restrictions. Apparently there were over a 1,000 people that gathered on Saturday. Did you uh, go and have a little sneak peek, Mike? No, but <laughs> so Tomoitan and I went out to buy a helmet. for the... We just bought a moped over the weekend. Uh, we went out to buy a helmet and um, the guy who gave it to us is like, oh, so you're not at the, at, the, uh, at the protest? I was like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, the protests are on. I was like, oh, that's fucking... <laughs> The funny, <laughs> funny thing about this is since then, Tamaki has taken to social media saying that we should be thanking him for standing up for what he calls oppressive laws. So let's see if God's on his side next week when he faces a judge. So I, I, I want to give some clarity and some context for some people who don't know what this guy's up to. Why is this guy such a sort of I mean, he's widely disliked within New Zealand. Why? I mean, he has some very controversial views, mostly religious views that have been attached to, you know, Destiny Church, um, things around abortion, gay marriage, um, yeah, all sorts of things like that. And he has just, yeah, been against vaccinations, basically. He doesn't think that the New Zealand government should have a right to be able to put those kind of laws um, or messages in place really yeah i mean i i kind of cast my mind back to the 2011 um christchurch uh earthquakes and he said at that time that the earthquakes were because new zealand was full of sinners and something about gay marriage or something like that the guy's basically a total piece of yeah. Whatever. Oh, yeah. He basically said that was the outcome of us legalizing gay marriage. Yeah, he's a he's a dickhead. Yeah, let's move on from him. He's annoying me. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I mean, this is pretty cool. So, an Indonesian man has married his rice cooker. What? Yeah. No. No. He he married his rice cooker. I, I saw the pictures. So, in a, in a social media post, he kind of like documented the whole thing. Um, he can be seen kissing the rice cooker. The rice cooker is wearing a veil, and he's wearing a suit. Um, wow! And on the quote, and on the little piece of uh, of so, on the social media, the, the text for the social media, he wrote, "Fair, quiet, doesn't talk much, knows how to cook." <laughs> what do you reckon, Bex? Would you marry a rice cooker? I mean, my dating options aren't looking too great at the moment, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we've we've had these chats about Bumble Mike, so a rice cooker might be quite appealing to mm, me. Mm. Well, it didn't work out, so he oh. divorced the rice cooker after four days. What happened? Why'd they get a divorce? I don't know. 
I tried to find out. <laughs> I mean, he he wrote something. He put, he wrote a post like he's like with a heavy heart. I have to divorce this my my <laughs> wife or something like that, and didn't go into any like reasons why. Uh, it could be maybe he was. I don't think. I actually think he like got married to this thing, or I don't know, pretended to. But it looked like it might have been. I don't know some for play. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He crazy guy basically. Okay, well let's move on from one crazy guy to the next one. So I don't know if you heard about this, Mike, but this cracked me up when I saw it. A heavily intoxicated Turkish man found himself last week after he was reported missing and accidentally joined his own search party that was looking for him. It's so good. It's so good. So after a heavy drinking session with friends, Bayan failed to return home or answer phone calls, which prompted his family to alert the police. The 50-year-old stumbled into Forrest and reportedly joined the search party, not knowing, obviously, that they were looking for him, and he actually helped them search for several hours before finding himself. Classic. How does that happen? I mean, you're like, oh, all right, let's join it. (laughs) Yeah, oh, who are you looking for? (laughs) I guess I'm a bit new and a bit different. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go and and join a, uh, a, a search party. Pretty amazing, eh? I mean, he found himself. He so found they, himself. They obviously so did a good job. For sure. Well, actually, there's a question. If there wasn't a search party out there, would he have known that he was missing? That he was missing, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Who knows? Who knows? But thank goodness that he did find himself. The other side of Asia, a place called South Korea. <laughs> um, a plastic surgeon has been fined in South Korea for making a tower with slivers of jawbone taken from patients. So the tower is roughly 60 centimeters high, and it drew complaints from other patients and also from social media. There was a surgeon, 60 centimeters, yeah. So, yeah, so if you remember like those those 30 centimeter rulers, yeah, yeah, and then double that's what that. I'm doing with my hands. I'm mm. just trying to right, okay. Quite wide. It's quite 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 a big thing and actually i saw the pictures there's, there's heaps of them in there oh. so there was a there was a surgeon and what he would do is he would do plastic surgery and cut off little parts of the of the jaw apparently in south korea it's, this procedure is quite common um and what this surgeon did is he he put it into this like sort of perspex plastic whatever it was and then just sort of stacked them up and decided to be a good idea to put it on the facebook or wherever he put it oh. on and then a bunch of people complained about it. And they're like, yeah, that's kind of stupid. You shouldn't be doing that. Gross. Yeah, it's pretty... So what's happened to him now? Um, he was fined. So that's it. He doesn't have his license taken off him. Nah. No, 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 no. The fine was actually for something like pretty chill, actually. It's like just for not properly disposing of body parts over like medical procedures. So, yeah. Well, different um, strokes for different folks. Google it. It's, it's pretty pretty gruesome what um what he did so yeah um let's uh let's talk a little bit about today's today's show yeah so today's actually a part one of a two-part series on the exclusive brethren um so on this episode we're going to discuss what the church or alleged cult actually looks like on the inside and then next week we're going to get more into the nitty-gritty of an experience of an ex-member and her excommunication from the church so we'll talk a little bit about just a really broad overview of, of, of what this church is about, just so we have a bit of information heading into the interview. 
The Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, formerly known as uh, Exclusive, that's a bit of a mouthful, um, was established early in, the early in the 19th century in Plymouth, Southern England. There were around 60,000 PBCC Brethren, I'm just going to call them Exclusive Brethren because it's a lot easier, with around 8,000 in New Zealand. They have a remarkable uniformity amongst themselves in practice, clothing and culture, primarily due to their strict separation from the wider world and their total devotion to the decrees of their leader. They describe themselves as evangelical Protestant Christian church, which actually, okay, that's interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that out in the, in the interview. But uh, for at least 50 years, they have been increasingly described by outsiders as a cult, primarily due to their strict theolo theology and practice of separation from the wider world and even from other Christians. Yeah, and we're quite lucky to have Lindy on the show with us today. So Lindy's a former member who's actually spoken up about her experiences with the Brethren. Lindy was born into the group in Auckland, New Zealand, and was excommunicated at the age of 20. Her family and the only community that she's ever known cut off all communication and ties with her, and she had to start a whole new life for herself without any support or any people that she knew or loved. Lindy joins us today to share about her experiences growing up in the sect and her journey since leaving over 13 years ago. Welcome to the show, Lindy. Thank you for having me. Hey, before we start, I just want to say that um, I really admire you and think you're really brave for coming on to the podcast today and sharing your story, particularly as we know, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, that the, this community that we're about to talk about don't take too well to former members speaking out. So thank you so much for that. My pleasure. So we want to start with just a few general questions about the exclusive brethren or the brethren as we're going to refer to it in the rest of this episode. What makes this brethren different from other Christian sects? And, and what are the core beliefs that you think are, are different from other Christian denominations? Yeah, great questions. Um, great questions. They have been saying lately that they, you know, they call themselves a mainstream Christian church. And those of us who are ex-members just shake our heads because we're like, ah, no, you're nothing. There's nothing mainstream about you. Um, the primary difference, I think, that sets them apart is is that they have a very strict doctrine and practices of being separate from the wider world. And that's not just from the wider world. Um, but also from all other Christians and other Christian denominations as well. So they, yeah, they've got many practices and beliefs around keeping themselves separate. Um, and in their view, it's to keep themselves pure. Um, and yeah, they base this separation on a particular interpretation of a slightly obscure verse in the book of 2 Timothy 2. Um, and that's a verse there about separating yourself from dishonorable objects and yeah, the exclusive brethren, for some reason, decades ago, they actually chose this one verse as their charter, they termed it, um, their, their sort of core charter, their guiding principle. And since then, they've used this idea of very strict separation for pretty much all of their beliefs and actions. Um, I think a couple of other key things about them that they believe, one is that they believe like a lot of um you know, sects or extremist groups, they do believe that their own group has got the, the best light or, you know, the most light out of any other group of people on the planet. So, yeah, they believe they're the most pure of all God's people and have, you know, have got teaching that brings into question whether anyone outside of their group is even saved and that kind of thing. So, yeah, those, those that kind of teaching is common to other cult-like groups. There's another... 
Another key practice that sets them apart, I guess, is that they've got one global leader who they call the man of God. And um, in many ways, he operates a bit like a pope, the pope does to the Catholics. He's he's the ultimate authority. His teaching is viewed as pretty much infallible. Um, and he has yeah global authority and power over all of the exclusive brethren around the world. So yeah, there, there are lots of other smaller differences that set the brethren apart from um, what I would call mainstream Christianity, um, you know, such as how they how they dress and, um, you know, that they have church every single night of the week and um, members can only attend uh, member-only schools. You're not allowed to pursue university study on site. You can't vote. You can't be employed by non-brethren businesses. You know, I could go on and on. There are lots of little things about how they live their lives but really all of those things come from this overarching total commitment to trying to be separate from the rest of the world. That's really interesting Lindy Um, as you know I grew up in a mainstream community environment uh, sorry Christian environment and what you're talking about sounds really quite different to what I experienced growing up as a Christian particularly those um, practices about trying to be as separate as possible from others. I'm wondering, what is it about the rest of the world or non-brethrens that they seem, that they find so impure? Um, I think they, they've got a particular view of the world that um, sees themselves as having the most light and that they are therefore the most pure and so I guess by definition that means that anyone who doesn't share their same beliefs or their same practices is impure or is defiled and corrupt and so for them that's why they actually separate from um, the rest of other Christian denominations and other Christian people around the world as well like they won't have um they won't eat or drink or pray with or have um, any form of Christian fellowship with other Christian groups because they believe that they have got a less pure version of the gospel and that they are therefore, you know, could be contaminated by having to do with them. So I guess it's part of their their theology about um, humanity and that they, yeah, they've got the light, they're pure and everyone else by default, therefore, is is out. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm just, I'm curious. I, when you talk about this, I kind of get image of the Westboro Baptist Church in America. Do you know about those guys? I have heard about them in the news. And from, um, just to make sure I'm connecting with what you're saying, um, from my, you know, observing of them, they yeah, got very um, black and white views and, a, and obviously a, a real def- strong definition of who's in and who's out. And then a real fear of those people who are out. Is is I mean, they they're seen as quite hateful people by the general community. I mean, they were they were the people who held placards saying quite awful, awful things about people who had died and all the rest of it. Is the is the um the exclusive brethren is their theology how should I put this hateful? Yes, um yes it is. In fact, I think in the news at a couple of points I've seen a quote from Bruce Hales that ex-members have have talked about where Bruce Hales, the leader, is encouraging people to have a hatred of the world. I think he uses the term an utter hatred of the world, which is really strong language. Um, But again, if you put yourselves in, in their shoes, I guess, and put yourselves under their theology, they believe 
yeah, they to them the world is equated with everything that's in Satan's realm and everything that's, um, I guess you could say, sinful, everything that's not of God. And so for them that kind of teaching makes sense because it's like, oh, that's all the, you know, that's all the stuff that's um, against God. Therefore, we should hate it, try and get rid of it, try and remove ourselves from it. So, yeah, it is not, um, in my opinion, it's not the only way to read the Bible. and It's not the only way to be a Christian. In fact, I don't agree with it at all. And yet in their, yeah, in their worldview where there's strong lines drawn around who's in and who's out. Yeah, and I can imagine that if you're born into a community such as the Brethren and you grow up like this, this is all that you know and this is the only view that you've been taught from leaders such as Bruce Hales or whether it's other people in the community or your parents, you're not going to have any other real understanding of what the world is like. We're- yeah, that's right. And, a, and, a, and a, a common tactic or practice that groups like this have is, a, is the heavy restriction of information or of opportunities to have your eyes open to different thinking. And the Exclusive Brethren absolutely practice this, you know, having their member-only schools and that, um, yeah, until a few years ago, people had no access to the internet or radio or TV you're not allowed to socialize with outsiders. It means that you grow up in a in a really insular bubble and you don't actually have access to any other opportunities or social interaction that's going to open your eyes to a different way of thinking. Right. We've come across the terms as well, Lindy, of being shut up and being withdrawn from. Are you able to explain these a little bit more for us? Yes, I'm so sorry about that. That is our dogs barking. That's so fine. Like, cool. So you can splice that out. That's okay. My cat um, often makes an appearance, so we're pet friendly. Oh, pet friendly sweet. pod. Pet friendly pod. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah, the terms "shut up" and "being withdrawn from" is that what you just said? Yeah. 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 Those are yeah. Those are two terms that are very well known by all exclusive brethren people. It's yeah, exclusive brethren terminology. To be shut up refers to being closed up or being shut away rather than necessarily having your mouth shut, um, which some people think it is who aren't acquainted with it. Um, basically, to be shut up, it's a, it's a tear of discipline that's used on people who are seen as having behaviour or beliefs or, or something that means that they're out of line with the exclusive brethren rules or practices so it's a step before full lease communication um, and to describe it I would say it is kind of like a form of institutional silent treatment so in, in their view it's designed to kind of separate a person off um, a person who's um, you know in need of changing their behavior and um, it's designed to sort of make them repent and change their mind and, and come back to the flock type of thing but uh, yeah, in reality, it's it's a it's a psychologically extremely destructive and cruel practice, and it has pushed many a person to mental breakdown, um, alcoholism, and even suicide and all sorts of other long term trauma. It's um, in practice, it, it looks something like like this: the person is um, separated from. Uh, all the other members of the brethren so they're not allowed a shut up person is not allowed to go out to any church meetings and that's a really big deal when other brethren are your only form of community Um, and you normally have church every single night and several times on a Sunday so to go from a lifestyle that's extremely busy and extremely um, based around these community meetings to suddenly be 
separated from all of those is um yeah really kind of shocking and and really really isolating um often if the person is married they even have to separate from their spouse and and sleep and live in a separate room to their spouse um wow. if they're part of a bigger family you know like have their own children or or whatever the children and and the spouse and yeah all other family members are no longer allowed to speak with them and yeah they have to live out of a room in the house or often they're moved off to another house on a different property to fully isolate them so yeah if you're going to an exclusive brand school and you're shut up you can't talk with any of the other kids so one of my sometimes an entire family is shut up even though only one person committed the misdemeanor like my sister uh, tried to elope once and our whole family was shut up myself my five siblings and my parents and yeah um, my siblings were going to the brethren school and they were not allowed to sit with or talk with or eat with any of their friends and yeah it was really cruel and it had long-term you know traumatic effects on my siblings yeah and I I was going like my brothers um, and sister I was going to I was um, employed by a brethren business and I was not allowed to eat with or talk with anybody in the business as well for the duration of that time and we we were shut up for about three months from recollection but some people are shut up for much longer than that my father has currently been shut up for um, coming up two years and so he's living in a separate house from my mum and yeah they're they're doing it to him so it's 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 pretty cruel yeah and excommunication is, is the step after that. That's the step when they kind of um, finally give up on you and formally make an announcement in their church meeting that they're withdrawing from you. And um, That's and being you, withdrawn from? Yeah, that's being withdrawn from. So that's, the, that's kind of their, their terminology for excommunication or being shunned. And that, that means, um, in a way, the guillotine has come down. There's no more hope for you. You'll no longer be visited by priests um they've given up that you'll repent you are cut off from the community and everyone that's that's a that's a globally binding decision so all exclusive brethren around the world will have to um yeah they'll hear about it and they'll know that they are to no longer speak with you to you know cross the street if they see you in the street to yeah just cut off all communication with you so lindy i've just got a couple of quick questions about that i i'm I'm kind of i'm kind of curious about being excommunicated of the proportion of people who are, who came from the exclusive brethren who have left, which of those people have left voluntarily, like as a percentage, and which have been shunned or withdrawn from? Do you do you know those sort of figures, and do you know how, how that is? Um, I don't know the figures, and the brethren are very careful. It seems to not keep records, um, but they have been doing this practice for at least the last fifty years, um, formally, and before then. Yeah, there's stories of it as well. Um, every just to make it clear, and yeah, if I'm understanding your question right, every single person who um, who is no longer who can no longer agree with or live by the exclusive brethren practices, they all get excommunicated. Yeah, but so, I guess I guess, um, and we'll, we'll touch on your sort of personal um, situation in a second. Yeah. But I guess I'm wondering. Um, if you don't agree with, you know, the system of the exclusive brethren or, or whatever, um, you will get shunned. But I'm wondering what proportion of the people who have left the church have left by their own will versus people who... Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Who left of their own will versus people who decided I wanted to leave. 
or people who I don't know if one it's like it's your sister for example um, would try to elope and was sort of shut up or whatever like let's say there could be somebody who actually desires to still remain in the church but has for some reason done an action and they were withdrawn from or does it even happen yeah I, I think I'm understanding your question right some people are kicked out excommunicated and they don't want it yeah for whatever reason they were kicked out that's happened a huge amount um particularly in in previous decades yeah, where people were kicked out for sometimes really minor offences such as having listened to a radio or having gone on a picnic or gone on a holiday, things that weren't allowed. So, yeah, there have been many people who, who were put out. Um, yeah, my, my auntie, as I have been told, was uh, was actually was raped and was put out, so that was trauma upon trauma. It, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't something that, you know, she chose as such. Um there, yeah, there are, there are many stories of people who were put out against their will and then there are others who, yeah, who for whatever reason decide, I want to leave, I don't agree with this anymore and I want to leave. I've got a um, cousin called Craig Hoyle who's been quite public with his story. He is he is gay and he came to realise he wanted to live out as a gay man and that he knew that meant he would have to leave. I think I think the key thing there is that nobody, you know, you might want to leave the exclusive brethren and their beliefs and way of life but nobody wants to be excommunicated from their family members and their friends. And so that's, I think, where the rubber hits the road with the exclusive brethren and what makes them quite unique as well. And and it's why people term them, call them, use language like a cult with them, because, yeah, you might choose to leave a church, but to choose, um, no one would choose to be completely cut off from their family members forever. That's that's the thing that is incredibly traumatic and very difficult to stomach about what the exclusive brethren do. Yeah, I can only imagine the the trauma and the pain in having to make that decision and to make that choice of whether to stay in a community where you know that you just can't live and be yourself and then being separated from your family. And, and I know that's a, a pain that you've experienced yourself, Lindy, and so we want to move on to, to learning a little bit more about your experience. Um, just to start with, just can you tell us a little bit about your family background, like how your family ended up in the Brethren community? Yeah, um, I, so I was born into it, like most people are. The, the Brethren don't actually evangelise or try to recruit, unlike a lot of other cult-like groups. Um, yeah, so I was born into it, and both of my parents were born into it. Um, yeah, so in many ways we were an ordinary sort of blue-collar Pakeha family, grew up in South Auckland, um, and yeah, we would have probably been a you know, very ordinary family if it hadn't been for our, our family's total enmeshment with the exclusive brethren. That's really interesting. I didn't actually know that the brethren didn't evangelise and recruit other than those who were born into the community. Why is that? I believe um, I've, it's something I've tried to understand over the years, and I did... Uh, try and ask the leader when I was in there as well. I wrote him a letter with a bunch of my questions, things I was trying to understand more. And one of the questions I asked him was, yeah, why don't we have, you know, overseas missionaries and evangelists the way that people, the way that other Christian churches do. And I never actually did get a response from him, but another priest said to me that, um, and this is, I guess, just hearsay, but he had said to me that the leader said, that is not our calling. And in trying to understand more about the Brethren's theology and why they believe what they believe, I think that for them, one of their core beliefs is that they are this um, 
this unique, pure, holy group that is yeah more pure and more holy than any other group. And so for them, they sort of believe that their calling is to just retain that purity. And in a way, that's not a numerical thing. It's it's more about just being like truly being a holy huddle, you know, being the special group that um, maintains its its purity and its holiness more than anything else. And that matters more than trying to get other souls to heaven. That matters more than doing good works in the world. That matters more than kind of putting your light on a hill. It's, yeah, keeping that purity for them is is the be-all and the end-all. Right. It sounds like you were kind of starting to ask questions and trying to understand more about your own brethren community and beliefs and practices while you're still there. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with some of the restrictions um, and practices that you felt personally and particularly as a female growing up in the Exclusive Brethren? What was that like for you? Oh, yeah. Oh, there were so many restrictions and I did struggle with them. I was I was a so-called tomboy who was, you know, far more at home climbing a tree or playing ball rush than I was with learning to cook or to care for babies or the men folk. Um, and the brethren have got very, yeah, the brethren have got very traditional expectations and roles for women. You know, we were forbidden to wear trousers or to cut our hair above our shoulders. We had to wear headscarves and stockings to church. Um, yeah, women sat separately to men at church and were not allowed to participate in preaching or teaching. We were expected to marry as soon as possible. And once you had children, you no longer worked. You were expected to care for the children full time. So in many ways, yeah, really traditional views of women and of the roles that they could play in society. And I, yeah, I really resented all of those things. Um, And two things in particular that were prohibited to me that I really struggled with was um, I really loved to learn. I really enjoy learning and I yeah, I, I knew my mind wanted, was craving learning and higher education and the opportunity to use that to contribute to wider society, to be able to engage with the world around me. And I knew that those things weren't open to me and that felt, yeah, that felt pretty stink. Um, and secondly, I was a very physically able and active person and I would have loved to have been able to extend myself with sport or similar pursuits, but yeah, that was also prohibited to me so yeah those are a couple of things with regards to the outside world did you actually feel like an outsider or because the as you said as you sort of mentioned before the the holy huddle or whatever it was um did you feel like the the church's social frameworks were enough to actually insulate you from the outside world i.e you didn't feel for the most part you were kind of like okay i have my own thing going on in here yeah um okay so yeah one thing that um is different about about the brethren than a lot of cultic type groups I guess is that you know everyone's familiar in New Zealand now with Gloria Vale and the fact that they live in isolation that they live in a commune you know helps define them as as a cult like group in people's minds whereas the brethren don't live in a commune they they do live in particular cities and towns all over New Zealand and people do live in their own homes but I guess this is where the separation thing makes it interesting because even though they don't live in a commune, um, rules around where they live and how they live make mean that they actually function exactly like one, even though they are within wider society. So, for example, they have to live in particular suburbs and they have to be within a particular geographical distance um, from the local their local meeting hall. 
So, yeah, you can't just go and decide, well, I'm going to move off to this city or I'm going to move off to this suburb. You have to stay within certain geographical locations. Um, and, yeah, and you because you're not allowed to socialise with outsiders, even your next-door neighbours, it does mean that your contact with the outside world is limited. Um, also, growing up, yeah, we had no no internet technology, no radio, no TV, and, um, yeah, literature was also really limited, including, you know, magazines like the National Geographic and that kind of thing. Even magazines like that were, were, were not allowed. And so, um, yeah, contact with the outside world was limited. I did go to a normal public primary school. I was one of the, the last, I guess, group of kids across New Zealand and the Brethren to go to a normal primary school because the Brethren were busily building their own schools around this time. So in my lifetime, they've been, um, yeah, busily building their own primary schools and high schools in each country where they live and pulling their children out of the state schools, um, again, for reasons of separation and protecting their members, I guess, from that, that outside influence. So I think that's a real shame, obviously, because that was one place where we did get exposure to to others and were able to yeah have, have at least some connection with non-brethren people. I think growing up we did feel like outsiders. We were never allowed to have other kids over to play or go to their houses. We were not allowed to eat with anybody. So even though I went to a normal primary school, we had to we got picked up and had to be taken home to eat our lunch every day so that we weren't building those social connections did through you, eating. Did you feel like at what point did you feel like you're an outsider? Because at some point mm. So when I was at school, so I grew up in Nelson, and right, our, you would have met lots our of neighbours. Our neighbour was a, was a brethren, although he was the more chill type because they would actually talk to us. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> but we so growing up, uh, primary school, they would get separated and stuff. And I always wondered. I always thought, you know, and they all wore their funny stuff, denim skirts and whatnot. But I always wondered <laughs> <laughs> at what point did they actually feel separate do you know what I mean like there would have been a yeah, point I, like you always would have felt like separate to a point but there would have been like a moment where you're like I'm not actually the same as everybody else yeah for me it's as long as I could remember I think yeah and it's probably was to do with yeah from a very young age you knew you had yeah your clothes were different we had to wear a little you know um clip in our hair we had to wear skirts um we other kids were talking about tv shows or yeah things that we couldn't do so yeah always felt like an outsider, I guess. And then, you know, as time goes on, that's just reinforced as you become a teenager. And yeah, yeah, very, very much. You you knew you were different. And the Brethren encouraged that kind of thinking. It was like, yeah, we're special. We're God's uh, chosen people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So on one hand, you had this idea that you're special and it's okay to be different. But then, I mean, as a kid, all kids just want to belong and feel like they're they're yeah. part of the wider group. So I can imagine that would still be really hard. So, Lindy, we want to get to the nitty-gritty now. What led you to become excommunicated? Why did you leave the Brethren Community Church? Well, in short, I was excommunicated because I could no longer agree with the Brethren's principles and their practices, particularly around extreme separation. In the Brethren, you can't agree with some things and not others. You know, unlike a lot of churches out here, there's often people agree on the basics, but... Um, you know, when it comes to it comes to some things, churches have got room for difference in belief and in practice. Well, in the brethren, you you it's all or nothing, um, and you're not allowed to kind of doubt or question 
that as well. So in my late teens, I started asking existential questions as, as you kind of do when you hit your teens, you know, what is the purpose of life and is there a God or not and um, what am I doing here, all that kind of thing. And I actually began reading the Christian Bible and I was quite shocked to discover that Jesus actually lived really differently to how the brethren live. And yeah, all my life I'd been told, you know, we're God's chosen people. We're the only ones who are doing the right thing. We are, you know, we're, we're God's anointed. <laughs> and so to, to read just the Gospels and discover that Jesus lived quite differently to how we did was really shocking for me. It was like, hang on, he's like explicitly having to do with sinners. He's explicitly, um, you know, living this living this sort of nomadic life and walking around and walking into strangers' homes and eating with them and that kind of thing, all the things that we were forbidden to do, it was like, hang on, if this guy is God or like, you know, a representation of God, then why is he so different to what we're taught? So, yeah, I started asking questions about why we were being so exclusive and so separate and yeah, it was very a real forbidden activity to do that. I literally had a locked briefcase and I had journals that I would lock away in there where I was questioning this kind of thing and looking up the scriptures because I was really afraid of, I knew it was wrong to, to even be daring to question and to trying to, you know, understand this stuff. Um, wow. So yeah, in the end they, yeah, I, this was a, you know, a period of several years, probably from about 16 onwards, I was just trying to understand more trying to, yeah, trying to understand why did we live like we did. And eventually, um, yeah, in my early 20s, to cut a long story short, I was discovered, it was it was discovered that, that I had been, that I had, yeah, been questioning a lot of things and that I was not only questioning, but by that stage I was starting to disagree with things and, and go, hang on, this does not make sense. Um, and I got in a lot of trouble. The brown stuff hit the fan, so to speak. Did you, did they reprimand you to begin with, or did they just immediately get rid of you? Like, how, how did that process go? I'm quite interested in that particular yeah. process. Yeah, they did. They did um, reprimand me. So we ca- we colloquially call them the priests, but they're essentially elders of of the church. And so those elders came in in Auckland, where I was from. They sent elders around to visit me. And that was a really common practice, so I didn't question it back then. You know, two or three men would come and meet with me alone, so my you know parents wouldn't be with me, or I wouldn't have an advocate with me or anything. They would come and meet with me alone, and essentially, yeah, ask me questions, trying to get me to change my mind, trying to um, yeah put put me in my place, I guess. And yeah, but it, it was actually quite interesting because at first I was really frightened of them, really afraid. Um, but in the end, it became really clear to me that they actually had no good answers to my questions. Like, and these are not, you know, I wasn't necessarily even, they weren't, they weren't hard questions. They were just questions like, why can't I become a teacher or a nurse? Like, why don't we evangelize? (laughs) Like, why don't we allow non-English translations of the Bible? Why can't I have a cup of tea with my neighbor? Why can't I visit my grandfather who was excommunicated before I was born and I've never seen him or seen a photo of him? Like, what, you know, where's your justification from the Bible about that? And yeah, they just didn't have answers for me and they were clearly evasive. What did they say though? I mean, were they they like, oh, you know, you you can't have a cup of tea with your neighbor because boy, howdy, they might (laughs) 
I don't know, throw you into a river or something like that. I, yeah, like, what, throw what? me into the pit of hell. Or, yeah. 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 Um, they... I, I'm just trying to think back. Um, usually it would just all stem around. It would sort of, yeah, just keep circling back to um, um, we are God's chosen position and God has sovereignly placed you in this position and who are you to question where God has sovereignly placed you? Yeah, it was it was usually kind of just quite circular logic, just always circling back to that of, um, yeah, this is where God has placed you. We're, the, we're God's chosen position on earth. Um, why on earth would you want to leave us? Uh, yeah, there's nothing out there for you. That's that's the world. That's the gutter. Yeah, that's where the devil is roaming. Um, yeah. And so right. after so after they tried to convince you of it, you just said, no, I can't agree with these things. And they said, right, pack your bags, you're out of here. What happened after that? Yeah, more or less. Um, it was... Um, um, I'm I'm fuzzy on the exact details, but for me, I think it was a process of about six months. So it was, yeah, it was incredibly, incredibly hard, incredibly traumatic. I think, looking back, I actually think I had probably some kind of a, a breakdown. So at that point in the show, Lindy had to, to bail off. She's busy. Um, and we'll pick it up next week. But before we do, Bex, I just wanted to ask, as we do in, in every other show, like, what did you have any sort of thoughts about what happened with that show? It was amazing. It was. I mean, it was just starting to get spicy and I just wanted to keep talking and talking. Um, oh, I was actually really shocked at some of the things that Lindy shared. Um, like I said, I, I, I know Lindy and I have, you know, learned about some of her experiences, but what she described to us tonight really blew my mind. I mean, it actually made me quite sad hearing about some of the experiences that her and her siblings have had and others in the community, especially when she was talking about that practice of being shut out or withdrawn from and the severe mental health impact that would have on someone um, and just the inability to ask questions. I, I, I found it quite ironic that there she was, a young person trying to understand more about God, yet that was a reason for them to want to excommunicate her simply because she was asking questions and challenging and wanting to know more herself. I don't know how that works. In the long, do, you know, do you know what I mean by that? Like, if you can't, if those sort of questions can't be answered, how can they keep on going? Because they're like, oh, they're obvious questions. But, sorry. But I think that's how they are sustained, is by shutting down those questions. And, and like Lindy was saying, this isn't a church that evangelizes and tries to get other people to join them. You're born into it. Hmm. And, and that's, that's their strength, is that they have these people that have been in this community since they were you know, babies. They don't know anything else. They don't know anything different, especially now, like Lindy was saying, that they've stopped children from going to mainstream schools. They're all homeschooled now. And so that's how the church or, or you know, we could call it a cult, that's how they maintain alleged their... Alleged cult. Alleged cult. Don't want them coming after us. That's how they maintain their power and control is by shutting down any kind of question or, or challenge or inquiry into what they believe in. I want to ask more questions about that, though. I guess maybe we can ask her about that. Maybe we can ask some other people who know more about the psychology behind this because it seems to me as though if you, the more you... There would have been a time where being an exclusive brethren was sustainable because you didn't have that much interaction with the outside world, which is sort of what I was getting at before in, in, in the interview. But now you have 
radio, television, internet, cell phones, all the rest of it. So you're constantly being picked at. I mean, I don't know how you can do that, but like the psychological element is what keeps people ring-fenced from the rest of society psychologically anyway. Um, There's so much in that. There's so much. So we have part two coming up next week, Mike. What are we going to cover then? Uh, We're going to get it more into sort of Lindy's more personal stuff. And yeah, it's tough, I think. Yeah, it's she's been through a lot. Yeah, she has been through a lot and I really want to kind of um bring in the humanity into it next week when we talk with her because I'm aware that even though she can she's really um clever and articulate and she can intellectualize her experience, it's still a really painful experience for her um to go through to be separated from her family, her community, to have to start life again. Um but yeah, really, really interested to hear what she has to say next week. So Tune in, kids. Part two. Part two. Coming your way. Coming your way. That was Amos. That was Amos. <laughs> Amos is hyped for it. He can't yeah. wait. And he's also like, I'm hungry. Where's my food? He's hungry. Yeah. All right. See you guys next week. Kia ora.